Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Cowden coming to you from Denver, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, Calvin University's president has resigned after allegations of misconduct. We'll have some details. Also, the T.D. Jakes Foundation announced $9 million in grants. We'll look at who the recipients are, plus take a deeper dive into some of T.D. Jakes' other business ventures. And I know you've heard about artificial intelligence. It's all the rage these days. But what about artificial intelligence AI in the pulpit? As technology advances, pastors are faced with new opportunities, but also some ethical considerations. We begin today with some sad news out of Tanzania. A bus accident claimed 11 missionaries serving with the group Youth with a Mission. Leaders of YWAM, as it's often called, are rallying for support to aid logistical arrangements, including medical evacuations, repatriation of the bodies, and funeral arrangements. What happened? Well, authorities say that a construction truck hit one of two many school buses that were carrying the missionaries. The participants uh, were there as part of an executive master's in leadership course, and they were returning from a field trip in Maasai land where the truck lost its brakes and then, of course, smashed into the Wawam bus. Police sources said the seven foreign nationals were from Kenya, Togo, Madagascar, Burkina Faso, South Africa, Nigeria, and the United States. The accidents, which involved four motor vehicles in all, killed more than 20, killed 25 people. 11 of them were from YWAM. It injured 21, eight of them with the missions group. Now, Warren, can you give a little background on YWAM for those who might not be familiar with the organization? Yeah, I sure can. YWAM was founded by Lauren and Darlene Cunningham in 1960, and it has an emphasis on sending young volunteers of different denominations to serve on short-term evangelization missions around the world. The group now has 2,000 offices worldwide and involves missionaries in more than 200 countries. YWAM established its presence in Arusha in 2000 and has since established three fully staffed offices offices in that region. I actually visited one of the YWAM bases in Tanzania in the past, not as uh, part of YWAM, but I knew a Tanzanian pastor who served with them, and they were doing some really great work there. Uh, The center's education program includes classes on discipleship ministry, tailoring, computer skills, English language, among a lot of other things. Yeah, well, Natasha, your story's remarkable, and I think one of the reasons that this story kind of hits close to home for a lot of us here is that many evangelicals in this country know people who work with YWAM or maybe have even worked with YWAM themselves over the years. They have a major uh, facility, for example, in Colorado Springs. Most people I know, and your story demonstrates this, uh, either have a one degree or two degree of separation from a YWAM staff member at some point in their lives. 
That's right. Now, Warren, let's move to our next story. What can you tell us? Well, the president of Calvin University has resigned after admitting that he engaged in inappropriate communication with a member of the campus community. In a statement issued on Monday, February 26th, the Calvin University Board of Trustees said that it had received a report alleging that President Weeby Bohr had engaged in unwelcome and inappropriate communication and attention towards a non-student member of the campus community. The report did not include allegations of sexually explicit communication or physical contact, but the alleged conduct is concerning and inappropriate, according to the statement. Has Dr. Bohr responded? Well, Dr. Bohr denied some of the allegations, but he did admit to sending communications that were inappropriate and inconsistent with the high standard of conduct and character expected of the president of Calvin University. Uh, Dr. Bohr subsequently offered his resignation, which the board accepted. No other f- details about Bohr's conduct or the complaint were given, but the statement did say this. This, that Gregory Elzinga, who is Calvin's vice president for advancement, has been named the interim president. Our next story involves a proposed bill in Missouri that would extend the statute of limitations for child victims of sexual abuse. According to the bill's summary, House Bill 1617 in Missouri, uh, it would allow a civil action to be brought within 20 years of the plaintiff reaching the age of 21 or within three years of the date the plaintiff discovers or reasonably should have discovered that the injury or illness was caused by childhood sexual abuse, whichever is later. The current law requires the civil action to be brought within 10 years of reaching age 21. That's right. So this bill extends that statute of limitations. Bill author Brian Seitz is a Republican from Branson, Missouri. He said that through no fault of their own, children who may have been abused in the past are being victimized yet again by not being allowed to hold their perpetrators to account in civil actions. The legislation passed unanimously out of the Missouri House Judiciary Committee on February 21st. Seitz uh, offered the same bill, though, during the 2023 Missouri legislative session, where it also passed out of the House of Representatives, but failed to make it through the Senate. Now, why do you think this bill is coming to a forefront now? Yeah, well, I think it's because uh, Missouri is the home of Canacook camps. Uh, Canacook is based in Branson or near Branson, and uh, they employed Peter Newman, who was convicted of child sexual abuse in 2009, currently serving two life sentences plus 30 years in Missouri State Prison. We've reported about that fairly extensively here at Ministry Watch, but survivors and family members of the victims who suffered sexual abuse while attending Canacook were a part of the activist group that was supporting this bill. Elizabeth Phillips' brother, for example, Trey Carlock, was abused by Newman and died by suicide in 2019. But according to Elizabeth Phillips, Pete wasn't the only one who abused my brother. Trey was abused again by Canacook and its agents who harassed and gaslit him in a re-traumatizing legal process that ended up in a settlement achieved by fraud, which included a restrictive non-disclosure agreement. Again, this is a statement from Elizabeth Phillips. 
And Phillips also claims that 16 other Kanakuk sexual abuse victims have also died by suicide. Extending the statute of limitations might give victims time to process and heal before having to file a civil action or relive their traumatic experiences. Now, most public testimony supports the legislation, but some who represent the interests of insurance companies spoke in opposition to this bill. Yeah, Rich Abauchin, who is representing the Missouri Civil Justice uh, Reform Coalition, noted that this change would have a huge impact on insurance rates for daycare centers and camps who aren't employing sexual abusers. Not every employer is a bad employer, he said. Please remember that not every employer is a can of cook. Warren, let's look at one more story before we take a break. It's the story of the American founder of a Haitian orphanage. He's been arrested for allegedly abusing four boys more than a decade ago. Michael Gillenfeld, he's 71 years of age, was arrested in Colorado back in January after being indicted in Florida on charges of engaging in sexual conduct with a person under the age of 18. The victims were residents of St. Joseph's Home for Boys, which works with economically disadvantaged children in and around the capital city of Port-au-Prince. Gillenfeld is accused of traveling from Miami to Haiti multiple times from 2010 to 2016, during which time the abuse occurred. If he's convicted, he could be sentenced up to 30 years in prison. Let's take a short break here. When we return, a closer look at the T.D. Jakes group of businesses and nonprofits. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hey everybody, Warren Smith taking a quick break from the podcast to let you know that during the month of March, we're offering a very special book. Uh, to anyone who makes a donation to Ministry Watch during the month. The book is called End the Reign of Pain, Identifying and Treating Toxic Leadership. The author of this book is Dr. Ricardo Baden. Uh, It's a new book to me, but when I met um, uh, Ricardo at the National Religious Broadcasters in Nashville, Tennessee, a couple of weeks ago, and he gave me a copy of his book. You know, I took it kind of politely and said, thank you very much, but then I read it. This book is special. It's different from a lot of the leadership books that I've read in the last few years. It deals specifically with toxic leadership and uh, how to deal with uh, leadership in a Christian setting, a church, nonprofit organization recommend this book highly and that's why we are offering it as our gift to anyone who makes a donation to ministry watch during the month of march Uh, so go to ministrywatch.com hit the donate button at the top of the page make a gift of any amount and we'll send you this book by dr ricardo Baden. end the reign of pain identifying and treating toxic leadership highly recommended now let's get back to the program Welcome 
Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, up next is the story we promised before the break, T.D. Jakes and his group of businesses and nonprofits. Recently, T.D. Jakes Foundation announced a $9 million gift grants to 16 community-based organizations in historically underrepresented communities across the country in collaboration with Wells Fargo. The investment is the first installment of what could be up to a billion dollars in funding by the foundation as a result of a 10-year partnership that was announced in April of 2023. What's the motivation behind these grants? Well, T.D. Jake said in a press statement that this partnership allows both of our organizations to catalyze change in a myriad of sectors and to help craft better lives for those benefiting from the work of the T.D. Jake's Foundation and other community organizations, including Wells Fargo, who are involved in this partnership. And who's received these grants so far? One of the largest foundation recipients, uh, $1.5 million, was a T.D. Jakes real estate project uh, in Fort McPherson, which is right outside of Atlanta. In fact, Fort McPherson is a historic army base near downtown. It was purchased by T.D. Jakes Real Estate Ventures in 2022 for redevelopment, and it plans uh, to create a mixed-use housing development, single-family homes, townhomes, and apartments with other amenities such as health care and healthy food options. And how are these grants funded? Well, according to the press release, uh, the grants are funded through a donor-advised fund managed by the Community Foundation of Texas on behalf of the T.D. Jakes Foundation and Wells Fargo. But neither T.D. Jakes nor Wells Fargo responded to Ministry Watch inquiries uh, asking for more information about these programs. What else can you tell us about T.D. Jakes' nonprofits? Well, T.D. Jakes Ministries and the Potter's House of Dallas uh, does not file a Form 990, nor does it publicly post a financial audit. So the revenue and expenses uh, and where they go are just not available. In the Ministry Watch database, in fact, they get an F transparency grade, which is our worst grade, and a donor confidence score of 10 out of 100. That means that donors should withhold giving to the T.D. Jakes Foundation. Let's move on to our next story, which has to do with the United Methodist Church. Yeah, the latest in a long series of stories we've done on the United Methodist Church. After four years of U.S. churches heading for the exits, the United Methodists are now rethinking ministry expenses at all levels within the denomination. The denomination's financial leaders met last week to shrink further what was already going to be the smallest proposed budget for the denomination in 20 years. What does that budget look like? Well, for now, they're proposing a 2025 through 2028 denominational budget of about $346 million. That budget will be voted on by the denomination's policy-making body, which will meet in April and early May right here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live. And that's about a a $23.8 million less than the budget proposal uh, that the Finance Agency Board approved in May last year. Yeah, that's right. Now, $23.8 million reduction may not sound like a lot from the $346 million that they're going to vote on, but you need to 
remember that this new bottom line marks about a 43% overall reduction from the $600 million budget uh, that was approved at the last regular meeting back in 2016. It's the biggest budget drop in the denomination's history. The most recent cuts to the proposed denominational budget respond to higher than projected church disaffiliation in the U.S., Over the last four years, about 7,700 U.S. congregations, which is about a quarter of the denomination's churches, have withdrawn from the United Methodist Church uh, under a a withdrawal policy that expired at the end of 2023. Those losses come on top of another 2,000 church closures that resulted mainly from dwindling membership. Now, I should mention, Natasha, that there is a lot more to the story. We're just really covering the headlines here. If you'd like to read more in-depth about what's going on in the United Methodist Church, go to our website, ministrywatch.com. This story is right on the front page. Well, our next story involves something uh, it seems everyone is talking about these days, and that is AI. Yeah, AI, artificial intelligence, is rapidly advancing, harnessing its abilities uh, to become a frequent topic of conversation among church leaders, if nothing else. And pastors are considering whether AI's assistance in various tasks, including creating, developing, and repurposing sermons, is appropriate. But some worry that relying on AI undermines the pastoral calling and threatens to divorce pastors from communicating with God. Last year, AI ministry think tank Glue presented its first AI and the Church Hackathon, where 41 participants worldwide met to advance solutions targeted at using AI technology to serve churches with the hope of receiving financing from a $1 million funding pool. The creators have since formed and cultivated a number of AI tools that can generate themes for sermons, recommend scriptures, give historical context, create social media posts, and transform sermons into conversation topics and devotionals. Well, I can definitely see how that would be an appealing tool for many pastors. Yeah, I think so too. Turbocharger preaching with the power of AI, says Sermon Maker, which touts fresh customizable sermons rolling out every week. Uh, Another AI platform called Pulpit AI repurposes a sermon into multiple media formats. Turn one sermon into unlimited content, the website says. Uh, How are pastors responding to this? Well, I think you can tell just by the descriptions that I've already given that not everybody would be wild about uh, some of these possibilities. A survey Glue conducted last August said that a majority of leaders, about 54%, are uncomfortable with the emergence of AI. But a study conducted this month by the Barna Group, which is also a Glue partner, says that three in four U.S. pastors, 77%, agreed that God can work through AI. However, only about one in 10 pastors, 12%, are comfortable using AI to write sermons, though about two in five, 43%, see that it might have some benefits in sermon preparation and research. So it sounds like some pastors are not totally shutting the door to AI. 
I think that's right. Stuart Strayan, who is a pastor and founder of the Pastors Workshop, though, told Ministry Watch that macro-level societal changes are making it increasingly challenging for pastors to be as effective in their roles as they have been in the past. And in many cases, there's been a breakdown between the pastor's personal vision for ministry and the vision held by the congregation, and that creates tensions within the community. And often, this workload leaves pastors feeling overwhelmed and burned out and they may see AI as a tempting solution, uh, providing help in sermon preparation and alleviating some of the burdens of pastoral ministry. Now, what are the risks of using AI? Well, some pastors have likened the church's embrace of AI to opening Pandora's box and warn that utilizing AI to write sermons essentially outsources the Holy Spirit by bypassing a pastor's most critical work. And are there any ethical concerns with using AI? Well, most of those on both sides agree that writing an entire sermon using AI would be dishonest and undermines the pastor's calling. All of those interviewed by Ministry Watch said in their own way that AI is just a new medium and does provide an opportunity for abuse. Those who would plagiarize books or pass someone else's sermons off as their own might exploit AI for selfish gain. Technologists in the Christian space are developing resources and networks like the AI Ethics Collective uh, to educate and discuss uh, these matters and try to come up with some biblical solutions. I should add, by the way, that this article, again, is one of those that we cannot really adequately summarize here. Uh, It's about a 1,300-word article, kind of a deep dive into this topic, and I really recommend it. It's on the front page of the website. And wanted to mention that the image that we use, the picture that we use, to accompany this article was one that uh, Jessica Eteralde, the writer of the story, generated using artificial intelligence. Warren, we're going to take another break. When we return, our lightning round of Ministry News of the Week. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hey everybody, Warren Smith interrupting the program once again, just to remind you that during the month of March, we are offering a new book by Dr. Ricardo Baden on leadership and specifically how to deal with toxic leadership in an organization. The book is called End the Reign of Pain, Identifying and Treating Toxic Leadership. I've read a lot of leadership books over the years. This book is really special, and it is especially relevant for ministry and church leaders. If you're a pastor, a deacon, an elder, or a donor uh, to a significant um, Christian organization, and you want to be wise in your stewardship or be helpful uh, as a counselor to others that are in ministry, get this book. Uh, You can get it by making a donation of any size to Ministry Watch during the month of March. We will send it to you as our free gift, absolutely uh, free to say thank you for supporting Ministry Watch. End the Reign of Pain, Identifying and Treating Toxic Leadership by Ricardo Bowden. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? 
The Accord Network announced this week that the organization's former CEO, Chad Hayward, has passed away from lung cancer. He was 50 years old. Hayward was, had served as the CEO of the Accord Network for the past 17 years. The Accord board chair, Nell Becker, Sweden, said that Chad is remembered as a faithful servant and a kind soul. He had the gift of seeing others and cultivating opportunities for them to thrive during his long tenure at Accord. Now, if you don't know the Accord Network, it's actually a pretty important behind-the-scenes organization. It's a group of more than 100 Christian organizations involved in relief and development work around the world. Accord brings its member organizations together to provide training and support, as well as create platforms for collaboration. The organization recently announced that its board of directors had selected Michael Cerna as the new CEO of the Accord Network, and he'll officially start his duties today, March 1st. Well, Warren, since we're at the beginning of a new month, we have a new list up on the website. We do. It's a list of ministries in our database that have a perfect 100% donor confidence score. Uh, now, uh, as many regular readers of Ministry Watch know, we we rate over 1,100 ministries. And to get a 100 perfect score uh, is really pretty unusual. In fact, only about 75 ministries or about 7.5% of all the ministries in our database get a 100% score. And if we've broken them down by segments, so for example, if you're looking for a relief and development organization or a pro-life organization or perhaps an evangelism organization, this list is the list for you. You can find out which ones are the most effective in that category. And we also have our list of the top 10 stories of the month. We do. Christina Darnell compiled that list for us. And probably no surprises if you've been reading Ministry Watch this past month. Alistair Begg, Franklin Graham, and his trip to the Mexican border are two at the top of this list. But to get the entire list, again, go to the Ministry Watch website, ministrywatch.com. That list is right on the front page. Who's in our ministry spotlight this week? This week, we're focusing on the Acton Institute. Uh, the Acton Institute is a Michigan-based think tank that promotes free market principles and religious liberty through seminars, research, and publications, maybe best known for its Acton University, which it uh, does every year and um, is a great drawing card for Christian leaders all around the country. Uh, the reason that we wanted to focus, though, on the Acton Institute is because it doesn't have a great donor confidence score from us, in part because it has over 27 $7 million in assets. Uh, that's a lot of money for an organization that spends less than $10 million a year on its program. So we wanted to shine a light on that and note that that means that the Acton Institute has only a one-star rating for asset utilization, which is one of the worst in our advocacy sector. To look at the complete profile of the Acton Institute, once again, go to ministrywatch.com. And who did Christina highlight in her roundup of Ministries Making a Difference? Chaplaincy Ministries is first up. Uh, Brad Sasser is the leader of that group, and it's an unusual ministry in that it ministers to long-distance hikers, many of them on the Appalachian Trail. They set up picnics along the trail, offer food, prayer, the gospel over time and friendship. Uh, Sasser and his wife have an app called Trail Servants for hikers that include Bible uh, verses, Christian media, and information on the 
couple's upcoming stop, so you can check in with them. Uh, the Esther Carson Translation Center in Peru is also on Christina's list of ministries making a difference this week. They're celebrating 100 years of work this year. Esther Carson Winans and her husband, Roger Winans, arrived in the Peruvian Amazon to minister to native tribes there in the early uh, 1900s. She died in 1928, but the ministry has carried on as part of the Church of the Nazarene. And finally, Water Mission and Compassion International, two very significant uh, relief and development organizations, are partnering on a global safe water, sanitation, and hygiene alliance. Their pilot project will start in Malawi uh, with the goal of bringing holistic care to children and families in poverty through access to safe water. Water Mission, by the way, is one of the top-rated ministries in our database. Compassion International, which is very well known, um, is also a highly-rated ministry. It has a donor confidence score of 72. Both ministries, Water Mission and Compassion, are ministries that you can give with confidence. And do you have any final thoughts before we go today? Yeah, just to mention that I was in Colorado two weeks ago meeting with donors and readers and in Nashville last week at the annual meeting of the National Religious Broadcasters. Stay tuned to the podcast and you'll be hearing some of the interviews that I did at NRB in Nashville last week. Also want to mention that next week I'll be in Texas. If you live in the Dallas area, I'd really love to meet you. Keep an eye on your inbox for invitations to a couple of uh, events that I'll be holding in the Dallas area next week. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Frederick Nzwili, Bob Smetania, Kim Roberts, Daniel Ritchie, Heather Hahn, Jessica Adgeralde, Brittany Smith, and Christina Darnell. And special thanks to the United Methodist News for contributing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.